Emerald podcast series. Research that makes a difference. Hello and welcome to the Emerald podcast series. My name is Thomas and my guest today is Petra Nordquist, Senior Lecturer in Sociology at the University of Manchester and a member of the Morgan Centre for Research into Everyday Lives. Her research explores reproductive technologies, kinship, intimacy, gender and sexualities and she is particularly well known for her work investigating donor conception and donation from relational perspectives. Her book, Donors, Curious Connections and Donor Conception is out now. As it is the title of the book, would you mind telling us what exactly is a donor? How should we understand that term? That's a good question, actually. So a donor in this book is someone, a man or a woman or a person, who decides to donate egg or sperm or embryos uh, to another person or a couple for them to have a child. So the donor allows other people to become pregnant, but without the intention of parenting that child. The donors that we interviewed both become donors via clinics in the UK. So they go down a licensed clinic route. They talk to infertility counsellors or fertility counsellors, and they sort of, they do their donation at clinics. But we also interviewed donors who know their recipients. So these are can be egg donors too, but it's usually sperm donors who donate to friends or people they know, perhaps they met them on social media. The way we went about it is that we we allowed people to define for themselves if they are donors or not in the book. Would there be someone who we might consider a donor and they would not consider themselves a donor for some reason? Well, I think this is sort of quite a slippery area so that it might there might be families for example who set off with a known donor where that person is intending to be a co-parent of the child and then for various reasons perhaps uh, things slip the relationships maybe don't go so well what what was set up as a co-parenting relationship might become over time more a relationship between a donor and the intended parents I think the issue in the UK is that often uh, clinic donors are the donors who are sort of recognised officially as donors and known donors are seen a little bit as sort of as poor practice, as something that happens kind of in the shadows. But it's actually a growing practice. People turn to known donation for, for various reasons, including that they can't afford to go to a clinic to receive clinical treatment so it's uh, it's definitely a sort of a growing practice that we need to consider and so lots of people act as known donors they might not be seen by clinics as donors but they themselves might think of themselves as such that is interesting and you talked about them kind of having the right to know to be anonymous um but in the book you also talk about them uh, it's in quotation marks knowing their place yes what does that mean exactly the UK has really gone from like managing donors by making them secret. So it used to be that donors were anonymous. They were sort of really written out of the child's life. They had no access to information. The child had no access to information about them. Since some decades ago, since sort of three decades or so, there's been a huge turn towards openness in UK donation, which means that donors 
there is a sort of transparency written into the law. So donors are aware that they can be found by the donor-conceived child when that person turns 18. And that, what we argue in the book, is that this has really created a huge shift in how donors think about themselves as donors. So they think about themselves very much as they need to be available. It's sort of the moral way at the moment of being a good donor, doing this in the right way, is by making yourself available to if and when the donor-conceived person wants to reach out to you and get to know you. So that is the sort of being available. But what we found as well that was that donors really has to balance what that means in practice with not stepping on anyone's toes. So they are, they're meant to be available, that, but then they're not the parents and they don't want to be the parents. So finding a sort of balance between being available but keeping a distance as well is, is something that the donors think about quite a lot about how to how to sort of balance those things. So to be very simplistic, if you're the donor, they can knock on your door any time, but you can't knock on theirs. Absolutely. So the way in which the law regulates openness is that the donor-conceived person on turning 18 can trace the donor. The donor can never trace the donor-conceived person. So the way in which donors kind of... Th- you know, really, the vast, the absolute majority. This was a real strong finding in the in the study. Was that donors think of themselves as needing to be available, but the way in which they imagine that relationship, usually in the future, is that they have a sort of a passive responsibility towards the donor conceived person. They are not to make any demands on that relationship. They are to answer questions, to be available, but. The person in charge is very much assumed to be the donor-conceived person. And you, you make reference in the book to you know, the donor is aware that their family, their immediate relatives, may have a view on this as well. Yeah, so this can become really quite difficult. I think, you know, in theory, not sort of pushing a relationship might seem quite straightforward, but actually when it comes to real life, it can become really quite difficult. So, for example, we interviewed a woman Uh, who we call Becky in the book. So all of the names in the book are pseudonyms. Anyway, Becky was, she became a donor, but as part of that process, she also had a child of her own. So she went down an egg sharing route, which is where a woman can receive reduced price IVF if she also agrees to donate some of her eggs. So Becky had done that. She had a child in this process and she also became a donor at the same time. And she was really you know, really content and really kind of on board with this idea that the donor-conceived child should be in charge. If they want to contact her, that's absolutely fine. If they don't, that's absolutely fine. She was really kind of fine with that. But it came more difficult for her when she considered the needs of her own child and the fact that they they couldn't make any demands on this relationship, which some might say is a half-sibling, although these terms are very contested. A donor-conceived child in UK law can trace their donor and can trace half-siblings by donor conception. But a child by a donor has no such rights. So there's a real sort of um, discrepancy in the law, really. depend. You know, in, in terms of genetic connections, the law don't treat those connections in, in a similar way. So Becky, who was really kind of on board with how we placed her as a, as a grown-up, the decision that she'd made, she felt much more uncomfortable thinking about her own child and their lack of choice and their lack of agency vis-a-vis this other child conceived with her eggs. Her daughter could not reach out to her 
potentially her half-sister. Yeah, exactly. Whereas the half-sister could reach out to them. You mentioned right at the start of the interview that the different types of donors, it included embryo donation. So this was this was actually fascinating because it wasn't what we set out to do. But we were contacted by a woman who saw herself as an embryo donor. Now, it's important, I think, to say that embryo donation is a different kettle of fish, mainly because if you donate embryos, there will be full siblings in another family that you don't know. And I think that is often perceived as kind of having quite a heavy, a sort of really heavy charge to have full genetic siblings in another family that you don't know. So embryo donation kind of needs its own exploration, really, because it has this kind of uh, a different charge to it. But this woman we interviewed, she was really fascinating because she considered herself a donor, but she had accessed donor eggs and donor sperm and embryos were created. She had a child from these embryos, but she had no genetic connection to them. Oh. But of course, the embryos that were still in the freezer were connected to her child. And that was the connection that for her was so vital. And that's how she signed up to the study. So again, thinking back to the question about who is a donor, was she very much thought of herself as one? Whereas we, you know, people who think what what is a donor might think, well, obviously you then have a genetic connection to those embryos, to what you have donated. But this was really important to her, that things were managed right because it was about her child. That's interesting. I mean, if she says it must be handled right, she obviously had a clear idea of what was right and what was wrong in terms of how it should be handled. What often happens with people is that some people have to go abroad. They find the waiting lists in the UK are too long. They can't access donor embryos or donor eggs specifically. And so what they do is they go to another country and each country have their own legislation on these matters. Even within Europe, it varies vastly. And whereas in the UK, we have had a legislation that provides these kind of pathways to openness for some time now. Across Europe, we still have a lot of anonymity. So she had gone to a country where all donors were still anonymous. And she felt really strongly that she wanted her child to be able to find out. So she couldn't change the law, but she was very forcefully sort of saying, well, I have made a note on my records. I want to be contacted. I want my child to have that contact. If these donors are at all available or want to make themselves open, we are here and we want contact. So that there are very sort of strong moral sentiments around how this should be handled and, and what people want from it. And, and the regulatory environment even here has changed, yes. like in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you reference a law that changed in 2005, I believe. Absolutely, yeah. So since 2005, children born after that date, when they turn 18, can access identifying information about their donors. So 2023 is a very important date here because children will start to turn 18 at the end of this year. It will be really interesting and a bit of an experiment to see what is actually going to happen (laughs) when people might start to make requests to open the register. So this is, I mean, it's a timely time for the book for this podcast because we're coming up to the big change. Absolutely. And about half of the donors we spoke to were clinic donors. So they had no knowledge of their recipients. They had no knowledge of the child or the children who had been conceived. But many of them were saying, you know what, I'd be open to contact. The current legislation does not allow any contact. There are no ways of making yourself contactable as a donor. But quite a few 
of the women, especially the egg donors, especially were saying, I'd be really quite happy if they want to talk to me. But at the moment, the law is very sort of rigid on those terms and does not allow a more flexible arrangement depending on what people want. So that I think is one of the findings that come out of the book to sort of that it doesn't necessarily fit all that well with how people themselves experience what it is like to be a donor. I see. And you see the big distinction between well, male donors and female donors. And it's a very different process. You set that out in the book. It's a very different, it's more intrusive for women. Yes, a lot more intrusive for women. There were gender differences, but they were also complicated. So that it wasn't, you know, whenever we thought we'd sort of said, right, this is definitely gendered, then there would always be someone who sort of muddled, <laughs> muddied the water somewhat. Is that a case that there's always one or the issue is more complex than that? <laughs> <laughs> I think the issues were more complex than that. And also uh, they might speak of things in slightly different terms. They might speak of the same issue in slightly different terms. For example, we it tended to be more men than women who spoke of being a donor as a sort of insurance policy, almost. Uh, and this is as a sort of, if I never have children, then at least I will have some genetic offspring out there. And this, uh, Leah Gilman, my co-author, has written in a separate article about the more selfish element, if you like, in quotation marks of donation now that tended to be men but there were also women who saw it as a sort of I want my genes to be out there that sort of narrative which which isn't necessarily the more known narrative uh, about what it means to people to become a donor. Can I ask what was the most surprising finding that came up in your research? Well I think one of my sort of um, favorite findings if you like is perhaps that there isn't a settled understanding about what being a donor means and there also isn't a settled understanding about what these connections means in families. So, for example, then, we had a lot of donors who sort of say, well, I've just donated an egg. I wasn't using it anyway. It was just going to go to waste. These are by no means my children right? Both women and men would tell us that. But they may well then go on to have conversations with their children who would say, oh, well, that's a sort of a half sibling, isn't it? Or with a parent who might say, oh, that means I've got a grandchild out there. And at that point, the donors would say, no, 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 really not. And quite often, in a lot of families, this didn't lead to any kind of conflict. It was just kind of held within complex family relationships anyway. But there were moments where a donor... So there's one particular example I'm thinking of where we interviewed a sister of a donor, actually. And the donor had been very casual. You know, it didn't carry any weight for her, really. It was just a good thing she'd done. But for this sister, it meant a huge amount because she had a child of her own. And to her, the donor-conceived offspring were actually cousins in her mind. And that's what kinship thinking does. You know, these some people may well consider these children cousins. There was a real sort of sense of tension, in a way, about how should we think about these donor offspring out there somewhere? How should we think about these connections? Yeah. Can I tell you my second favourite finding? <laughs> oh, please do. Yes, please. Yeah. There is a sort of a social norm at the minute that partners definitely need to know 
And fertility counsellors are also sort of strongly pushing that line. So what we found was that donors would usually tell their partners. They were much more flexible in terms of telling their own children. Most of them felt that children probably should know. But when they told and how they told, there wasn't a social norm established in that same way. Then when it came to telling parents, there was a lot more flexibility. Telling one's family of origin, a lot of flexibility. So that meant that you may well get these kind of pockets of secrecy within families where where people have been told selectively, which could lead to all sorts of really interesting situations where secret might be kept. There was quite a few of our donors who'd said, yes, I told that sister, but I haven't told my mum or dad. And don't you dare tell them. So so you have these kind of kinship knowledge being kind of negotiated and the, the donor the donation leading to these kinds of quite um, interesting relational issues within families. Mm. I'm curious if donors have talked about this with their families beforehand rather than revealing later. Well, this is it, that they, they would normally tell a partner beforehand. So a partner gets a say. So obviously then they will know if a partner disagrees or not. Families of origin so parents or siblings uh, in the absolute vast majority of cases did not get a say okay so there's a real sort of interesting mix in terms of what relationships are valued in what particular way what relationships are kind of perhaps seen as more fragile or couple relationships seem to sort of we need to sort of look after them a bit more than we look after relationships with our parents and our siblings um Whereas partners were invited to have a say, parents and siblings were not. We didn't manage to interview that many siblings, but the siblings that we did manage to interview, they were sort of saying, well, am I allowed to have any feelings on this matter? You know, there was a sort of sense in which they were not supposed to speak of it. They were not supposed to feel anything in particular about it. Um, But that didn't necessarily mean that they didn't have any feelings. But it was difficult to voice those feelings, if that makes sense because they somehow didn't have a legitimate platform to voice their concerns or feelings. Or... A friend of a friend was a donor. All right. And sitting on that conversation was extremely interesting because some somebody came up, it was a, a friend discussion, yeah. and somebody said, if your nephew dates a girl from Leeds and you know your donor children are somewhere in Leeds, would you then inform that side of the family that you know yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it can become really sort of you know uh in small communities where there might be uh, one donor who's been really very active within a, a, a particular region uh it can raise all sorts of really interesting kind of you know do i need to now make decisions around disclosure how do i do that and and how do you then navigate the fallout or the potential fallout this was a small community and it was somebody who when he first said was a donor people thought okay that's really interesting then he started to say how many and got a bit of a reaction and then he started to ask so what's the right number and that was a very interesting discussion yeah this must yeah, have been yeah. a decade ago and i still remember it you know going back to the beginning of the conversation when we talked about the right way of being a donor you know the number is very much part of a sort of moral uh, normative understanding, I think, at the moment about what that there is a right number. So UK clinics, uh, a donor who is a clinic donor can donate to a maximum of 10 families. So there can obviously be a number of children within 
those families. So it might be, say, 20 children or something max. Um, but the donors that we interviewed took quite a different approach. There was quite a few donors who had donated to one family. They were not happy with the idea of donating to more. And similarly, we had donors at the other end of the spectrum who had donated, you know, there was only a, a few, less than a handful of those donors in the study, but who had donated to a lot more than than the clinic, the current clinic guidelines. So I think there isn't a uh, or necessarily an agreed upon sort of um, sentiment, even that the clinic guidelines are correct. And we've seen a lot of change, as you said, in the in the environment over time. Do you find that donors themselves, they might have donated 20 years ago, 30 years ago, do you find that their views of donation have changed? I th- well, I think the social landscape has changed. So I think as people within society, necessarily people's understandings of what it is they're doing will change too. And interestingly, we interviewed a couple of men. So the study was about the current social climate around openness, but we included a couple of men who had donated at, in the 1980s. And their accounts were really, really different, actually. They were anonymous. They were really happy about being anonymous. They didn't share this kind of idea about needing to be available. Would you say that's generational? Is this a generational societal change? I think what people are told to think at different points in time has shifted hugely. Um, I think they donated at a time when they were not encouraged to think of this as meaningful in some way or as meaningful in the in a sort of you know think 10 years ahead 20 years ahead donors who donate these days are very much told that you know this is you know the child will have the right to find out your identity you need to consider the potential impact that this can have some years down the line it's a very different context in which to be a donor to act as a donor uh, similarly, we see the same with parents. You know, parents used to be encouraged to sort of go home and forget about having used a donor. Secrecy would be sort of in the child's best interest. And that has changed hugely. So you, you get these kinds of families where, where parents actually did exactly what they were told. And now we have a really different society where they are being seen to have done something wrong. But of course, you know, that decision then became part of how they operated as a family. So I think it's really important to understand people in their context, you know, acting. Uh, that they, It wasn't necessarily that they took a decision that was out of step with moral guidance at the time. Maybe their decision was actually completely in step with what they were told to do. Uh, it's just that what we understand to be the moral way to do things have changed. So they did good, but good has changed. Good has changed, yes, exactly. I'm very interested in your book. You do reference uh, popular media right, and the, the quest for parentage and the quest for bloodlines and so on. Um, I'm very interested in how you now perceive that media. And you, you know, you cannot forget your research as you as you engage in media. Uh, absolutely, I think it's I think kinship is just fascinating, and I think. Uh, it's fascinating to people. I think what was so interesting about the donor study was that we found that these connections are charged. You know, they carry a sort of potency in everyday life. And I think that's what you get in popular media too, that this is something that matters to people. They want to find out their potential dad that they've never known. There is a potency to kinship connections in society. That's kind of our culture. 
But what was so interesting about our study, I thought, was that that potency didn't necessarily follow genetic lines. So one example was that we interviewed a lesbian couple who one of the women had was the egg donor and the other woman had carried both children. And the egg donor wasn't particularly interested in the, you know, she, she kind of, you know, she was aware of her responsibilities as a donor, but it was the partner who actually was much more interested in future contact or who these children were and or who the families were. So the charge, the potency of kinship was very much there, but it didn't necessarily map on to who was actually genetically related to who. It's kind of experience. Yeah. Yeah. And it might be that um, in that family, for example, there was already a child that she had had. The one, so the, the birth mother, who wasn't the genetic donor, she already had a child. And their story was very much that child was very much part of their story. It was also her future. It was also about her. And kinship has this kind of fabulous flexibility to encompass all sorts of ways of being connected. And sometimes that is about genetic connectedness, but often it's not, but it doesn't make it any less strong. Do you feel that policy is fit for purpose? So I think what our findings are showing is that the current policy was written at a time where the donor-conceived person's need for openness was really the kind of, the real sort of key concern for policy. And that came out of, I think, a place where donor-conceived children's needs had not been prioritised, and here policy was going to prioritise children's needs. So great. That means that currently we have a legislation that sort of uh, legislates for openness, but it's a very partial kind of openness. So the only people who can seek information are the donor-conceived person, For example, donors can't seek any information about who has been conceived. Uh, Equally, recipient parents can never seek identifying information about the donor. But our study showed that donors and recipients, for example, has that connection between the two of them can actually matter in its own right. It doesn't only matter because of the donor-conceived person, but it matters because a gift was given and it enabled a woman or a couple to have a child and donors can feel really really strongly about that connection in its own right you know to the mother to the imagined mother for example um similarly as i've already mentioned donor donors own connections their partners or their parents or their children can feel really strongly about these connections and there is no pathway whatsoever for them to add their names to a registry or to seek any kind of information. So I I think there could be a case to be made about the law taking a more flexible approach, you know, perhaps allowing donors' own children to sign up to the donor-sibling link if they choose to do so. And there could be perhaps more done by mutual consent um, as opposed to having this really quite rigid approach to, to this field. This is obviously an important social issue to do with family relationships. Have you seen like a drama, anything from a TV episode to a movie in English or any other language, a play, a book? Have you seen anything that really handles this issue well? 
an interesting way, a way that you personally engage with and might might recommend to others? I'm not sure, actually. Um, we have written, as part of the project, if I could do a bit of self-promotion, we've written some sociological fiction based on the stories. So we worked with a creative author called Becky Tipper, and she has dramatised, based on our stories, she's written um, short stories based on the interviews, and they are really lovely, actually. Petra, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about our guests and for a transcript of today's episode, please see our show notes on our website. I'd like to thank Katie Mathers and Daniel Ridge for their help with today's episode and Alex Jungius from This Is Distorted. You've been listening to the Emerald Podcast Series.